0: Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through ConnectInvest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com slash CSB1. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Let's say you want to hire someone to bake cookies. So you get together eggs, flour, butter, sugar, baking soda, salt, chocolate chips, and you hire a nice seeming person off the street, and you put them in a kitchen with an oven and mixers and mixing bowls and sheet pans and utensils. What are you missing? Well, you've got the ingredients to make cookies, and you've got the means and the energy to do it. But you don't have cookies, and you're not going to without a recipe. You're either going to need something written down or the person you hire is going to have to carry around a recipe in their head. Philip Ourswald is an associate professor of public policy at George Mason University who says there's something else you could call that recipe, code. There's a lot of mystery around computer code and coders, but there shouldn't be. We've all been coding in some form or fashion for most of our lives. Philip Auerswald is the author of The Code Economy, A 40,000-Year History. Phil, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So how do you define code? Since I think so many of us think of it as like, you know, a combination of weird numbers and letters, you know, on a computer screen, and that's what code is. How do you define it?
1: Well, I mean, what those weird letters and numbers on a screen are intended to do is to uh, execute a certain operation or set of operations towards a goal. Um, So it's going to transform raw data in one format into a weather forecast that you can look at on your phone, for example. So that's a transformation that's not unlike taking raw ingredients. As you talked about, I start with the chocolate chip cookie example. I'm delighted that you started with the chocolate chip cookie example (laughs) because code really is a recipe. The other word that I use uh, interchangeably with code and recipe in the book is technology. Technology is a combination of two words, one of which means art craft or trade and the other one means in order to count. So technology, the word technology uh, strictly speaking means in order to count of art craft or trade which you know as I hear it means recipes. So these, these are words that that are really interchangeable and they're about transforming uh, one thing to another thing that's a higher valued use.
0: Hmm. When do you feel like code and how did code uh, start entering human life?
1: Well, so I titled the book uh, A 40,000-Year History because I was going back to the first example that anthropologists have uh, really studied carefully and exhaustively of a multi-stage production process Something that we might think about as code or a recipe along the lines of the creation of chocolate chip cookies. That was the production of obsidian axes um, in the Neolithic, and uh, of course, you know, we think about the Stone Age and axes and stone tools and so forth and so on. But even at that time, you know, roughly forty thousand years ago, um, you really had complex multi-stage processes that graduate students uh, in anthropology today have have difficulty re- replicating. Um, uh, you know, at least require some training to replicate, so so that's why I refer to it as uh, as forty thousand years for the starting point. But actually, as the book progressed, I realized it, it goes back further than that, as early as uh, as two million years ago. I would say hmm. would be the origin of what I'm calling code.
0: Hmm. Are there points at which you feel like? I don't know, code has like turned corners where human life got a lot more complex for one reason or another. And that, you know, what what we might think of as code, although we don't usually call it that, just really started to increase in importance and complexity.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, um, so when we think about um, one version of what code means for the future, um, you've got Ray Kurzweil's notion of the singularity and that we're all going to be sort of cyborgs and our capacities are going to be enhanced by machines. But that story, that transformative story of the way technology really shifts that what we are as human beings goes back to, as I was just sort of uh, alluding to a, a moment ago, two million years ago. And what happened two million years ago? Well, our ancestors, pre-homo sapiens, did something that turned out to be very clever. Before eating food, um, they either crushed it or Mm -hmm. they sort of cut into it with sticks or or, or stones. It was very primitive, but what it did was externalize some of the functions of our digestive systems. Mm -hmm. It was sort of like we created a machine for digestion that was external to our bodies. And it meant that since we were spending less of our energy literally in our gut digesting food, that it freed up energy to... To grow our brains, and that 's what we did, so that was the first that was the first major disjuncture, mm. uh, but the invention of the alphabet and and what that meant in terms of it of course it's not a coincidence that that coincided with uh, or roughly coincided with the origin of cities, so the city is, as a platform for creating and sharing code this another interval, but uh, human history is arguably i mean that's the case that i 'm making in this book overwhelmingly the story of the evolution of code
0: right it's interesting you know you talked about um That when you take a process out of your body, as our ancestors did millions of years ago, essentially, as you said, like pre-digesting things, getting calories out more effectively than having, you know, so that we didn't have to like eat all day, like many animals, obviously, spend all their time trying to get and digest food. That that was this sort of externalizing of technology uh, for us. And I remember years ago hearing an interview with... um, Phil Libin, who created Evernote, which is this app, and the idea is like it keeps track of the stuff you do. And he said, I want my app to be an externalization of our memory. You know, that it used to be that we had to think, what do I have to do next? What do I have to do? What, you know, what are the notes for this meaning? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore, because this will be an externalization of that technology. And when you describe the, you know, the roasting of the animals... His analogy was exactly the same, that don't worry, we'll just externalize a process.
1: Right. Uh, I mean, you know, you easily could have have said back two million years ago, um, you know, don't touch the meat that way. What are we going to do? Like, We're not going to have anything to uh, occupy our time Mm -hmm. uh, because we won't be digesting food. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, no, it turns out growing a brain is, is good and then it opens up new possibilities. And so whenever we externalize one function, now it's sort of like it takes maybe somebody, I don't know what the age barrier is, over 40 or something, to remember when you would have remembered your friend's phone numbers, you know, that that was like a thing, that there would be sort of certain people whose phone numbers you remembered and you memorized them because they were like your best friends. And, um, you know, we don't do that anymore. It's right. just everything. And, and so it, that's, I have a little, I have sort of nostalgia for that time period. There's certain <laughs> phone numbers that I remember me from too. my youth. Me too, me too. And they're special. I mean, those are very special. So it's like, my kids don't get that experience. True, okay, they get other experiences. So there's always gonna be this shift uh, in, in, and it's really a shift that's pretty profound. It's a shift in our identity. You know, what's meaningful? Uh, you know, how do, we, how do we define a relationship with another person? Um, you know, that's mediated through things like remembering somebody's phone number and the fact that we don't need to do that anymore, that it's just a waste of time at some level, you know, then becomes, you know, a shift in, in really what we are and how we experience the world. And that always happens when when there's an advance in code.
0: You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Karen Miller. I'm talking with Philip Auerzwald, author of the book, The Code Economy, A 40,000-Year History. How do you think that it helps people to think about code the way you think about it, which is not just a few special people who, like, work at Microsoft, you know, that kind of thing. But really that it's something that we all engage in all the time. How does or, like, how should that change the way we think about code?
1: Well, that's an important question for this book, because it's sort of like, why write this? Right, uh, I mean, right. everything that we've talked about is fun, but right? And there's sort of like, I mean, at least I think it's fun. <laughs> mm. I, I hope it's fun. Otherwise, I wouldn't have spent so much time working on this. But there, there is a point. And I mean, the, ep- the epigraph uh, with which I begin the book is from Julia Child. Um, and Julia Child's autobiography, or at least, uh, you know, sort of for part of her life, my life in France, was a real inspiration for me in writing this book. And I think that we have to sort of understand the deep significance, not just validate in some sort of peripheral way, but understand and recognize the deep significance of the advance of code in all its dimension. And the advance of code in the culinary arts is a huge dimension of Mm -hmm. the human experience. And and somebody like Julia Child is a great inventor and a great technologist. You know, we think about uh, technologists, that doesn't make any sense. But she did something that was truly remarkable, which is that she took Uh, the code of another culture and translated it for our culture. But in so doing, she actually advanced the understanding of French cuisine, even in France. Mm -hmm. And it was that act of encoding a code that had been mostly tacit, mostly not understood, that was really a huge advance. So I think, first of all, it's important to understand the the, the significant, profound, uh, actually, contributions of of those people who advance code along all dimensions. Uh, And the story of Ruth Wakefield that we began with, the the inventor of the chocolate chip cookie. cookie. Yeah, and and, and a great inventor, a great entrepreneur who who deserves to be elevated uh, along with all of the other great inventors and entrepreneurs of the early 20th century who were operating in a certain sphere of these transformations of the early 20th century, really, you know, a remarkable time period. So that, that was the first point. The second point is that if we understand the evolution of code, the advance of code and what it means, then it puts into context something that we talk about a lot, but that I don't think we really understand, which is the job right so there's sort of a notion that the job is something that is a constant in human society that that somehow we have to have jobs when we look even just 2 or 300 years into the past much less 40,000 years we realize that the job as it's usually discussed and understood has only existed for let's say roughly 150 years hmm. Now, there might have been the British East India Company, and there were a few large scale organizations imperial China you know that were that were large scale and hierarchical and you could say there were jobs prior to one hundred and fifty years ago, but as far as a sort of dominant way to organize society. You couldn't have jobs, in the way we think about it, till you had large-scale organizations that were running complex code that needed to be distributed among different teams and groups and so forth and so on, with each of them executing part of the code. So that's going away. Jobs are going away, um, and they had a little interval. They were an interesting experience uh, for, uh, for for humanity, but that's not the only way to organize society. We organized ourselves for millennia before we had jobs. And we're going to continue to organize ourselves after we have jobs as they're – I know that's going to sort of create some sort of – you know, it may induce some kind of, like, reflexive panic. But but I think we just have to understand, like, what is the actual reality we live in?
0: So explain that more. I mean, I understand what you're saying in the sense that, like, people did not used to have jobs. They were farmers because their parents were farmers and – Uh, the instruction for farming, sort of the code for farming was passed on to each successive generation. But obviously, we pass on code in in kind of a different way now. You know, you hire someone and you say, here's how you make a jet engine. Um, But you said uh, jobs like that are going away. Explain that.
1: Well, I mean, so so, uh, first, in order to put it into context, Mm. people often talk about agriculture, but let's go back to the trades, right? I mean, for centuries, uh, people's lives were Sufficiently short, relative to occupations that people developed, occupational names like Smith, barber, baker, mm-hmm. Eisenhower means ironworker. This was an interval uh, where it would be expected that you would you would pass the same trade uh, down through through generations. Um, so that doesn't exist. We don't have Mr. Human Resources Manager. That's not your name. Uh, you have another name. And then you, you have this job that's a role that you fill, and then you may no longer have that role. You right. get a different role. Right Now, that's going to go away because there's because the organizations in which these jobs um, are situated, I, I don't mean, you know, is it go away. I, I, what I mean by going away is go away as the dominant way to organize uh, society. It's not to say that we won't still have large-scale institutions. There won't still be roles in them, and they won't look a lot like jobs. But, I mean, what I'm saying actually is something I think every Everybody listening understands that this notion of, you know, you get in a job, you work in that job, you retire, you, you, know, then you sort of have your retirement. That's, that's what your life is. That just doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. So what's going to replace it? Well, what has to replace it, I mean, in my view, inevitably will replace it, although, you know, this is really the crux of the question, is opportunities for meaningful work. That's very different than a job. And then the question is, how is that meaningful work remunerated? And that is really a social question. That's really a question of how we organize society so that the value that people create in the world is rewarded in such a way that they can have self-esteem and have the opportunity. We all have the opportunity to raise children, just all the basic things that we want to do, have meals together. So I think that what replaces jobs is a variety of of opportunities for meaningful work uh, that we must and I believe will create. Um, as the structures that have been relatively more permanent structures that we've been calling jobs uh, begin to diminish in importance.
0: What is your best advice for people to uh, think about that new reality? Like, should you learn how to... I mean, we've been talking this whole time about how, well, we really already know how to code because we know all sorts of codes. We know codes of laws. Like, we know ways to behave, you know, right. that if you don't want to get arrested, you do certain things and you don't do other things. That's a code of laws. Um, you might know how to follow recipes and that that's code. But should we all be learning... Like how to code in the way that we usually think about, you know, technology and coding. Is that important to going forward? Or, like, what's the best way to adjust ourselves to the way that things are about to change because of code?
1: So the default is to think, yeah, code is becoming more powerful. We all need to code. That's the wrong answer. Um, We should all, all, our children, all of us should have some greater literacy about what code, particularly digital code, is. We should just understand what machine learning is. We should just try to educate ourselves just just to be educated citizens, Mm -hmm. right? But in terms of our actual work and what value we bring to the world, it will be a relatively small number of people whose jobs are to interact directly with uh, machines to generate and modify code uh, at the level of platforms that are, are sort of going to be uh, or sort of organizing and governing uh, a lot of human inaction. Just the same way there's relatively few people who run, you know, water systems and electric power systems. And, you know, we count on those. They're important. These are technically trained people. We really require their expertise so that the water is safe to drink. I mean, these are valuable people, but there's just not that many of them. So what does every else do. Um, I mean, this is a you know a thought that came to me after the book was done. But really, I would sum it up by saying eye contact can't be automated. Well, somebody might say, oh, yeah, it can. Uh, no, it can't. It really can't. And here's the reason why. When you look somebody in the eyes, we don't know what that's about. We can't encode it. We, we, there's something about how we communicate as human beings when we are really engaged with another person uh, and looking in their eyes That is just a human experience. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do is be really good at that. If you're not comfortable connecting with another person directly as a human being, understanding what the this, this sort of mystery of their consciousness and your own consciousness. I mean if this all sounds kind of like mystical or whatever, yeah, we better get used to this <laughs> world because if we're acting like machines, guess what? That's not going to be mm-hmm. a viable way to to create value for other people. If you're just following instructions, we will have a another approach for that, right? So I would say, um, you know, if robots are taking our jobs, uh, what's left for humans to do? What's left for humans to do is be human. Mm-hmm. We have to figure out what that's about. There's, I don't really think that there's any other answer.
0: Phil Howerswald is an associate professor of public policy at George Mason University. He's also the chair of the National Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation. And he's the author of the book, The Code Economy, A 40,000-Year History. Phil, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It was really a delight. During this conversation, we mentioned the inventor of the chocolate chip cookie, Ruth Wakefield. We recently did a segment looking at her life. It's super short. It's about three minutes long, but it tells a backstory that you probably don't know. You can find it at innovationhub.org.